chapter 9, Hebrews. Uh, before we get started, I uh, really kind of like to go back just to do a little short recap of where we've been uh, as far as uh, chapter 8 and how kind of introduced uh, this particular section that we're going to talk about here in chapter 9. I'm going to go back and look at uh, chapter 8. I'm going to start with verse, verse 8 of chapter 8. Uh, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So this morning... As we uh, introduce chapter 9, um, I'm going to actually, uh, I want to kind of uh, just let that kind of, I guess, burn in your mind a little bit um, as, as I go through some of the, at least the, definitely a uh, good first section of this book as we contemplate what he is trying, his argument that he tries to bring out here in this section. Um, and that's the fact that he, and again, looking at the old, considering the new, verse nine, verse, chapter, verse one of chapter nine. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were lampstand and table, sacred bread, this is the place called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered all sides with gold in which the gold jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot speak in detail. Now, Basically, what I want to do, basically, in, in, in showing you this, this part of chapter 9, you know, one of the things he continues to do, this writer continues to do, is bring out the superiority of Christ. He goes back and he continues to look at the Old Covenant and the things that were instituted under that Old Covenant. Things that were, and again, as, as I as I've kind of expressed it again, and from what my perspective, as God actually designed that old covenant, we see from that, that at that point, that period of time, that was the purpose. That was perfect in what it did at that time. Please don't hear me to say that it's perfect, but it's what he had designed at that point in time, and again, what I would challenge anyone to say is when God creates something, God implements something, does he do it and it just basically just throws it together? Does he just put something and it's, it's either this way or that way? Or it's, 
you know, we think about what he does and we think about nothing that he would do would be something that we could say, we can pick apart, we can tear apart, but this is something that this writer continues to take these, these listeners, these, these Hebrew Christians that are continually thinking about Judaism, thinking about going back or the persecutions that they seem to face um, in, in, in light of this. And he keeps bringing back and I think just showing them and tries to paint a picture. Could they see this in their minds? Could they see that? They could see every bit of this. And they recognized what that was situated, why that was, had been implemented, why that was designed under the old law. And those that were the kind of things that without question they could remember. When we think about those instructions that were given to build the tabernacle found in Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 30 and all the things from the furniture and all the things that were to be inside that, Again, he's painting this picture of what was necessary for man to, have be, to be able to approach God. What was necessary? What had to take place? The Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the, the tabernacle, it's the bronze altar, the core of tabernacle, the oil for the lamp, the priests, their garments, and, their cons- and, the, and the consecration that they had to go through, the altar of incense, the labor of bronze, the anointing oil and incense. And again, that was a quick summation of really what you'll find in Exodus in chapter 25 through 30. Think about these instructions begin with the most significant artifacts of Israel. worship of God. It represented God's throne of mercy where man would accept their offering of atonement for sin. We think about what this was for and we think about what was necessary, it's important that we understand that. The word sanctuary means a, a sacred or a holy place, a holy, a holy thing. The taber- we, we think about the tabernacle in the wilderness. Was this tabernacle stationary? Was it locked in place? Oh, it wasn't. So we think about how it had to be carried, how it had to move around, how it continued. The word tabernacle is defined, a tent or a cloth, a hut, a habitation. When we think about that tent or a booth used, again, in in tents as dwellings, this tent, you know, and and we think about that as well when we look at, I'm going to move past that to, you know, when we think about this tabernacle, the first covenant pointed to the better. He continues to bring out the, what they had to do under that old law. And with regard to the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the first covenant, and we see this, had ordinances. When we look at, again, back in verse 1 of, of chapter 9, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. We think about a regulation. What would you think when you hear that word? What's regulation come to mind? This is the New King, I'm sorry, this is the American, New American Standard Version. Think about that word regulation. What does that mean to you when you hear regulations? Okay, a requirement? I'm sorry? Rule? Okay. So rules of divine worship and want to bring out that he's continuing to tell them again how the, the inadequacy, he's looking at this, what is under this 
this first or this old covenant, he's saying that this was an earthly sanctuary, an earthly abode, an earthly. So when we think about that and we consider that tabernacle's prepared, and, and again, he goes through all of this from verses 2 all the way down through verse 5. When we see this, the sanctuary, the holiest of holies, and then what he shows as we get into verse 6, you know, and, and again, I, I don't have time just for the sake of the class to go back to Exodus and, and really pick apart those things that I kind of did try to do just a recap and, and, in, and in a nutshell, so to speak, of, uh, of, of, of Exodus chapters 25 through 30. But I think you, you get the point, and I think these people as well, and this is what this writer is doing, he, he specifies some of the things that were involved in that sanctuary, in, in the tabernacle, and the things that, had to, had, that were required, that God had required. And bottom line, when we think this, before we actually get into verse 6, 7, and the, these next few verses, what was it ultimately, just in your own words, what was necessary? What was important here for us to remember? When we think about all the things that I, we just listed, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lamps, all of those things compiled, comprised what? What was necessary for those, of those things? Why did they have to be there? Worship God. To be able to approach God, to be able to have a relationship with God. Now, he's bringing out again, I think, when you consider, and, and, and we'll look at this later, especially in the next few chapters as we start to end the book, but we think about what he's tried to bring out from, from day one when we think about Christ being superior to, to prophets, to angels, to Moses, to Joshua. And he continues to bring this out. Well, now he's, here we are in chapter 9 as we've come out of chapter 8, and we think about this priesthood that had to, when it changed, the law had to change. And now we see for these individuals to, he's really want them to think about, is this what, is this what you want to go back to? Is this what you want to go back to? Is this what you want to, is, you can remember this. And he's saying, if this is what you want to go back to, it's, a, it's for naught. There's nothing here now. And yet today even, are there those who still from a Judaism standpoint who would still believe this and still believe this is absolutely. And we see the things that he continues to bring out and the things that he continues constantly over and over and over. I mean, you, you hear the word, and I'm saying this with all due respect, but you hear he's almost, it's like a browbeat is, is what he continues to try to bring home to them. And the only thing I can figure is because when he's inter interacting with these individuals, it is very, 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 very difficult for these individuals to let go of this, for them to let go of this. Is this what you want to go back to? And he's saying, no, no, you don't. So we think about verses 6 through 10, the services of the first the services, all that was required under the first covenant, all that was required there pointed to a better. And we think about in that, what were the priest's function? And so when we look in, in verse 6, we see 
Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So when we see that the priest's functions continues under this, the services that, were, that point back to the first, the high priest's function, the first, and we see this was figure of the better to come when we look at these and continue through verse 10. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. When we think about that term, we think about this, the term uh, reformation. We think about that uh, of reform. All of this, all of these services, all of these things that we're reading about right now, they were all in act. They were all in were active. And if right now we're still in a position as he continues to bring out until a time of reformation. What would that time of reformation mean? If something's going to be, take the word reformation, what's the word you see stand out in there? Reform. What's going to be reformed? I heard something but it was a whisper. My ears are pretty good, actually. Oh, I'm sorry? What? The law, okay. So we think about the law. The law is going to change. So that time of reformation, when we think about that particular time frame, I think it's important for us to remember, you know, during the time of the old covenant, during the time of the tabernacle, the sanctuary on the earth, Again, earthly, talking earthly, what was going to have to transpire and what had. In these, in these readers' eyes, they are what? Are they Christians? Christians. These are Christians. And so, again, because of some convoluted thought process and some things that they continue to think about and the way they want to go back and maybe are being pulled that direction, He's saying, you know, that since they relate only to food, drink, and various washing regulations for the body imposed, those things had to come about until this time of Christ, until this time of Reformation. Verse 11 kind of takes us into that, into that particular situation right here. Verses 11 through 14, we see when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. How was it perfect? How was it more perfect when we say that term? Again, coming from verse 11, uh, and again, reading from the New American Standard Bible, these good things to come, he entered the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. So let's think back for just a minute. and get, What's he trying to bring out when he says that? Think back to the earthly tabernacle. Who made that? I'm sorry? Okay. Okay, maybe. So in that process, is that, when we think about that, is that what he's bringing out here with Jesus? 
It's just different. There's people who today believe that that's not the case, that Jesus had no impact on this, and that this old law, that this, this, this initial first covenant is still in effect. And they, I, I work with a man, and he's, uh, he's to, the, to the hardcore, he believes that uh, he is still under the old law. I mean, he is hook, line, and sinker. In the chats that we have at times, I'm not sure I'm even penetrating that. And based on this study, it's been fresh on my mind to talk to him about it. But he's, uh, he's lock, stock, and barrel. And I'm telling you, and the, where he attends, they are too. And if you think that that's not today, we read this and some of us say to ourselves, how is this possible? How is it possible for individuals to believe this and to still embrace this and still look at this as their way to God? And there are people who are emphatically. This is what they believe. So when these Christians are basically pressured and as this writer continues to talk to them and continues to bring evidentiary value to what he's trying to say to them. He's trying to bring substance. He's not just talking off the top of his head. He goes back to, and he shows them the tabernacle. He shows them the tent. He's telling them this. And he says what? Jesus has come about, but when Christ appeared as the high priest, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Nothing physical about this. Nothing fleshly about this particular part. That is to say, not of this creation. Verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So when we think about this, Christ is the high priest of a greater tabernacle. He's, and, and with that, eternal redemption by a greater high priest and tabernacle brought about what? Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption that we see here through, through verses uh, th- th- through, for, through verse 14. If the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Okay, so we think about that. Verse 13. Think about that just for a minute. Sometimes I think some of the wording, sometimes we can, we can miss what he's really bringing out here if we're not careful. The blood of bulls and goats. What could the blood of bulls and goats not do? Take away sin. So what's he say here? If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Stop right there. Under the old, under the old covenant, what was that priest doing for himself and for the people? Okay, rolling their sins forward, covering their sins. But their sins never under this particular, under this particular law, under this particular covenant, they still were there. But what was necessary, what were these priests doing before God for these people? Making atonement. Making atonement. That's right. 
That's exactly, and, and, and when we think about that, we think about what, they're, what they were charged to do. This was the only thing possible. This was all that was allotted of the, for them. But then he says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will this blood of this, of this Jesus Christ, whose blood was perfect, whose blood was without spot, without blemish, before God? What did it... You know, and God had, as we've talked about through this study, God had set up this plan. God had devised this plan, and this was now, we see it come into fruition. We see it as it unfolds. And we see that this blood of Christ, through this eternal spirit, offered himself. This wasn't something that a priest walked in. This is something that a high priest was, was doing under the old law. He wasn't able to do that, not for the sins of the people, but he could cleanse our conscience from dead works. When we think about sin, we think about what sin causes. Sin brings forth what? Death. And this Jesus Christ, what he's able to do as he brings this, and, and I, again, showing them this comparison, showing them this contrast, vast, vast contrast of what is, of what is before, what has been before them, where they've, where they've come from, and where they're now even still, as Christians, still thinking about wanting to go back to, still thinking about, you know, there's things that are still drawing us here. And he says, why would you want to do that? Why? How much more is the blood of Christ going to take away, cleanse your conscience from dead works? You think about that, and I've tried to, I've tried to just think about living in that period of time and knowing that, that the sins that I've committed, that I carry him to a high priest and he goes before God and basically hands those over to God. Would you still have that on your conscience? If you're really trying to serve God and you want to be right before him, think about your conscience because where am I going with that? When you think about what Jesus does for us, do you not sleep better at night? Think about your conscience when your sins have been removed, not rolled forward, not covered, but forgiven. And I think we say that with invitations. We say that with Wednesday night invitations to individuals who still haven't responded to the gospel. How do you sleep at night? Your conscience he says that right here, cleanses your conscience from dead work. You don't have to worry about that to serve a living, the living God. Now you see God, and he says, and I think he says to these readers, think about, think about this for just a minute, he says. This is what you had back under that tabernacle, that tent. This is what you had. 
But now look what you've got. You want to go back to that? You want to, you want to embrace that again? And then what's, what, what do we see here as we look at Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and again, by his death, verses 15, 16, and 17, obtained redemption for those under the first covenant. The new covenant was dedicated by blood like the first. Let's pick this apart just a little bit. For this reason, verse 15, he's the mediator of a new covenant. We talked about that in chapter 8. A mediator, a go-between. He now is an arbitrator. He can say to God, he can go to God on our behalf because of his new position where he is. No, he, no, no high priest could ever do that. That high priest, he was, so to speak, that go-between, but that go-between had limits. That go-between could not do what Christ could do. And he says, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trans of the transgressions that were, that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So when we think about this, what did Christ, what, the mediator of a new covenant and his death, what did it do for those who were obedient to the law? What did it do for them? They're passed away. They're, they're not here. Did they experience that promise? And we see that. We're going to see that and talk about that a little more in the latter part of Hebrews. But did they experience what he's talking about right here? Did they see it come to fruition? What do you think? They didn't. They didn't see it. They died. So what, what have we talked about? What was necessary if Christ hadn't died, say, for those, what was necessary for those people under the old law, what did they have to do in order to be saved? Keep the law perfectly. Keep the law perfectly. And did anybody do that? No. Nobody did that except one individual. One individual, we see that. And, we've and we talked about that, Christ. Christ was able to do that. But since we think about here are these individuals that didn't keep that law perfectly under that. And so what was necessary for them to experience what we're reading about right here in that second point, those individuals who, who kept and were obedient still followed after God, even though they were bringing their sins every year. Think about that. They were still bringing their sins, those sins of atonement. They were bringing those to the priest, to the high priest. And he was going before God on their behalf. What's Jesus done? For those individuals, now he's obtained redemption for those under that first covenant. Now those people's sins are what? Gone. They're, they're forgiven. There's the redemption. There's the saving. Those, those individuals have got an eternal inheritance. Again, when I think about that and I think about the mindset of these individuals as they think about where they are right now as Christians and their thoughts of going back, their thoughts of returning, how could they think that? How could they do that? And again, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to undermine them. 
But when I see the stark comparison of two covenants and what this one that was earthly, this one that's from, from God and through Jesus Christ, the superiority of what Christ has brought about, how could they even give it a second thought? How could they do that? But they were. But they were. And there's those today that do that too. For 16, for, there's a co- for where there's a covenant, there's the necessity, the death of one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while one who made it lives. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. We, yes. Sorry. But anyway, uh, my, this version uses the word will. Will, sure. Will. Yes. And we mm-hmm. think of a will as it's null and void until someone passes. That's right. So. Yep. And I, and I appreciate that. You're just a little ahead of me, and, I'm, and, I'm, and that's no problem. I appreciate that. No, no problem. When I, and again, when we think about that, for a covenant's only valid when men are dead. And as, she, and as Karen brought out, with this, we think about a will. Maybe the covenant, maybe that doesn't strike us, but we think about a will. And I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand about But we are, we are familiar with what that means when we think about setting up a will. Maybe something that, that I've set up, and if, when something happens to me, that that will then says all those things may go to Melanie. And then if something happens to Melanie, she, that will that she has set up would say all this goes to the children. But what's necessary when you see that play out and how that, again, comes to fruition, it's only valid when someone dies. Think about Jesus Christ and what was necessary. For it's never in force while the one who made it is alive or lives. Verse 18, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment, and I'm just going to move forward here. This was, again, in Old Testament, which we see as he brings out in Exodus 24, verse 8. As he, and again, I, I, I continue to bring forth these, these quotations that we see that they would have been familiar with. And... Uh, So when we think about this better and perfect high priest, Christ's sacrifice was what? Once for all. Once and done. But it says, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Even the first covenant, we see that from blood of bulls and goats and all the things that were necessary. We've you know, I've, I've heard a lot of lessons about the, how much animal sacrifices and how much blood, all of that was necessary. When we think about the old law, it's, un, it's, it's when I've heard staggering figures of that. And again, Jesus Christ, with his sacrifice of himself, one time, one time, but it took his What? It took his what? It still took his blood. It still took his blood. 
Again, these sacrifices that God required, still they took blood. And it was over and over. And we think about that in the old law. Again, think about these individuals and what he's trying to say to them. You want to go back to that when you can have once and for all? You can have it one time. Jesus died for you. Jesus has made and paved the way. And look where he sits now. He sits on the where? The holy of holies. He sits in heaven, the holy place. That's where he is, the holy of all, the holy of all. And in that process, what does he do? He's that mediator. He's that mediator, but he did that once, and he's able then to go in. So with every commandment spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, verse 19, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, and here we are, and again, in verse 20, as, as, I, as I posted a while ago, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And again, he gives them that from Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Again, looking back, and he's showing them what that blood, all that was necessary for God to be pleased and for him to approve this particular act, it was necessary for them, and again, for them to do this, for when we when when we see the the sprinkled the high, sprinkled the blood on the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood and according to the law one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood when he says when we when he says that uh, according to the law one may almost say was everything everything was it done with blood everything Okay. Use the word nearly. What do you think? Were there other things that were done that were that would satisfy God? That would when we think about this particular statement, this writer would say, according to the law, one may almost say, almost say. I want to read this to you. Just see what you think. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 11. But of this, but of his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, for his offering for that which has sinned. He shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. I just thought that was interesting in my study as I read about that. Almost everything required blood, but there were a this or a that. And I think that's what he's, I think he's trying to say to that, to tell them. They're aware of that, and they know that. But I think that's a, I just thought that was, again, in my study, how I found that that was kind of an interesting statement that he made there. Um, and it, but again, he says, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Verse 23, therefore, it's necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The copies, therefore, it's necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens. When we think about copies, we talked a little bit about that last week. What do we, what do we know about what we're seeing 
when we talk about shadows and copies. This tabernacle that I had a picture of up on the, on the screen just a few minutes ago, that the real thing was out a shadow or a copy. I think, you know, again, he's continuing to stress this to these, to these Christians. He continues to bring this out and the things that were required. And he says, you know, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ, in verse 24, did not enter a holy place made with hands. Did the priests under the old law? Sure did. A mere copy of the true one, again, as we talked about, brought that out, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. We think about what those, that high priest did when he went behind that veil and he was in, a, in the presence of God. And we think about now Jesus, this copy of the true one, but he's gone behind that veil. What did he do with that veil? Torn in two. Torn in two. So when you think about it being torn, it's out of the way, what does that do when we think about what Jesus did with us and our relationship with being able to have interaction, being able to have a, 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 a relationship with, with God? He took that out of the way. As a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, is not his own. He says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once the, the consummation of the ages has been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What he said was, is you look back to the high priest and he says that to these people. You look back to, and see what that high priest had to do for you and what it was necessary for you to have a relationship with God. But Jesus Christ has come along and with his, with his sacrifice of blood and he himself who gave that, he's saying to them, had he not done that, it would have been necessary that he would have had to suffer often too. But once that consummation, once that has happened of the ages, he's been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as we think about this, Christ offered a one-time sacrifice, sacrifice of the old covenant. And again, often with the blood of another, Christ, the sacrifice of Christ was once with the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch, verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once, again, think about that. And as he, you know, and, and, and obviously, as I'm teaching this class and I'm sharing the thoughts and the things that come from my study, He's talking to these Christians here, these Hebrew Christians. But he's also talking to us. He's also talking to us. And we need to realize that. And we need to think about what we have and the benefit that we have, the gift that we have. For Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, 
to those who eagerly await him. Any comments or questions before we shut down? Thank you for your comments. I appreciate it. 